When Howard Kuramitsu was in his 60s, he got an email from a woman he didn't know. She had seen a drawing he made in the first grade. It had been kept by his former teacher. And she wondered if he might want it back. My drawing had my name written on the top, and somebody saw it who knew the teacher, and so she looked me up on the Internet. The drawing was featured in an exhibit of artifacts from the Japanese-American incarceration. Howard had attended the first grade at Hart Mountain in Wyoming. It's basically a drawing of the barrack, which was the school with uh, the actual Hart Mountain, which the camp was named after, in the background. One of the remarkable things about this drawing is that, without context, it isn't that remarkable. It's just what Howard was seeing around him. It's not particularly bleak. It was made with bright-colored crayons. It's the kind of drawing any six-year-old might do of their house or school, the kind that would look more at home on a refrigerator door than a museum wall. But instead of a neighborhood in the suburbs or the city, this drawing depicts the prison camp that six-year-old Howard knew as his home. At the time, he didn't know why he was there or that his life was really any different than any other kid's life. It wasn't until he was older that he would start to understand the impact of spending part of his childhood imprisoned. I'm Kate Ellis, and this is Order 9066, a podcast about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. In between our regular chapters, we're bringing you extra material from our time reporting this series. In the last extra, we told you about a handmade pin featured in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. In this episode, we're going to tell you about two objects that were submitted to our website by listeners. One was from Sam Mihara, who you'll hear from later on. And the other was the drawing made by Howard Kuramitsu. Well, I actually have it hanging up in my study, and uh, when I do look at it, it doesn't bring back any real memories. It's, it's just something that, uh, you know, reminds me of where I once was. Actually, I have pasted on the drawing, I have my address. I still remember the address uh, from Hart Mountain, 1222C. The few memories that Howard does have from camp are mostly just kid memories. I remember things like, well, a lot of naughty things. I guess they stand out in a boy's mind, like smoking behind the barracks. uh, Or I don't know how we stole potatoes from the mess hall, but we would go and uh, bury potatoes with charcoal. At that age, Howard knew there was a war, but he didn't understand the details. I remember things like, you know, seeing movies outdoors, uh... And I remember, you know, I had no idea that why I was in camp. So, you know, when I saw the John Wayne movies, of course, I rooted for the Americans. I had no inkling that I was considered, you know, like the enemy. Howard was eight when his family was finally able to leave Hart Mountain. They relocated to Chicago, where he says he encountered few people of color, let alone other Japanese Americans. In fact, for for a time, uh, my sister and I were the only non-Caucasians in our entire school. And so I guess I felt 
like I was on trial all the time, that, you know, I had to prove that uh, I was really an American. As he was thrust into a starkly white world, Howard became acutely aware of his skin color. I always felt like an outsider. One uh, example of this is that uh, for some reason, if I go to a new area and I see other people of color, whether they're black or Hispanic or whatnot, I feel a little better than if I'm in a completely Caucasian environment. And I mean, there's, there's no rational reason for that except for I'm sure this all comes from uh, my experiences as a young boy, especially right after camp, because uh, you feel like you're being watched, like people aren't quite sure about you. And I think those, all of these experiences, they've had a big impact on me, probably bigger than I realize. Essentially, all that remains of Howard's time in camp is the drawing, a few photographs, and the emotional weight that he has carried. Each of those things took time to come back to him. When Howard was in his 20s, he took a cross-country road trip. Along the way, he stopped at Heart Mountain. As he walked through the grounds, he wasn't hit with any particular emotions. The camp had been cleared away. There wasn't much left to spur his memories. It was only after driving away from the place that I began to think of how desolate it was there. And, you know, I remember the winters were very cold and bitter and windy, and the barracks are leaky. They didn't do a good job constructing these. You could feel the cold, and, and it was hot. I mean, I've, I was actually there in 63 in the middle of summer, and it was hot. So I felt pretty sad when I drove away from there, knowing uh, that I and my family and you know thousands of others lived under those conditions. So it just overwhelmed me. As he left Heart Mountain, Howard started to cry. Life was not easy at Heart Mountain. Even though Howard doesn't have too many memories of this, other former residents of the camp remember it vividly. Sam Mihara and his family got on the train from California to Wyoming when he was nine years old. It was a difficult ride. It was about three days and nights riding on that train, and armed guards uh, completely uh, surrounding the train every time we stopped. Uh, and I remember we finally arrived at Heart Mountain. It was very cold and windy, dusty, a desolate place, and we got on the backs of trucks carrying our one-hand carry uh, and then winding up in, in front of our, um, our barrack which, where they let us off. And uh, walking in, it was, a, it, was a, it was a shock. The living quarters were tiny, just 20 feet by 20 feet for a family of four. The food was bad. There was no privacy. And, as the Miharas soon found out, the medical care was minimal at best. Sam's grandfather had colon cancer, and the makeshift hospital and camp seemed to only make him sicker. Several years ago, Sam was able to get a hold of his family's medical records from that time. And the local doctors had him on a, a starvation diet. 
I remember because he kept asking for food, and we brought food to him, uh, but it wasn't enough. I mean, his medical record showed he, he was not given intravenous feeding. He was, he was not helped at all. In fact, they gave him a laxative to keep him clean. Sam's grandfather died at Heart Mountain. It might have been a lack of experience and resources that led to his death, rather than outright cruelty, but the effect was the same. I think it was more neglect uh, on, on the part of the government, not wanting to spend any more money transporting people to outside uh, experts, not wanting to provide adequate uh, or desirable food and proper shelter, saving money where they can. It, it was just inhumane result of neglect. Sam's father had medical problems as well. When the family was living in San Francisco, Toki Nobu Mihara was seeing a specialist for glaucoma. But at camp, the few doctors they did have certainly weren't ophthalmologists. Without proper care, he lost his vision. I watched him as he went blind, so that was a very, very difficult time for him. But Toki Nobu, a first-generation Japanese immigrant, was determined. He was highly educated, fluent in both Japanese and English. He created his own system of Japanese Braille to help himself and other blind Japanese speakers to read. He worked with another prisoner who was skilled at wood carving to create an ornate wooden reference board with all the Japanese characters and their Braille equivalents. That's the object Sam submitted to our website. I remember he was teaching other blind people who was in the camp. I don't remember how many there were, but he was teaching uh, blind Japanese inside the camp, how to read the Braille. So he was trying to, you know, get the word out that uh, this existed. Tokinobu kept busy in other ways as well. Not only did he create this Braille board, but he also wrote several books about how to learn English for people who speak Japanese. He wrote a translation dictionary between Japanese and English. He did have helpers. I remember he had some people who come in and, and help to dictate, help to read but we did that all inside the cell, inside the room, inside the camp there at uh, Heart Mountain, Wyoming. For Howard Kuramitsu, the injustices of camp took many years to unpack, like a dream that comes back in bits and pieces. Sam was a little older and wide awake to the hardships his family was enduring. Being subject to the terrible environment, the conditions, the weather, the, the food, being restrained inside a, a prison camp with barbed wire fences and guards, there wasn't a, a you know, instant development of an awareness. Uh, it, it was constant throughout the camp. In, in the case of our family, you know, seeing my father going blind and, and my grandfather passing, uh, those were very, very difficult times for our family. And uh, I was bitter for quite a while. But it wasn't just the experiences behind the fence that affected Sam. The racism he encountered outside of camp was especially painful. Toward the end, the government let us out of camp a few at a time to go to town and do some shopping. And I'll never forget, I took my father, who was blind, and walked up and down Main Street of a town called Cody, Wyoming. And looking in the stores, I could see in the store window about every third store would have a sign that said, no Japs. Awful. I'll never forget that, the degree of hatred that still existed after we were there for three years. That was probably the worst experience I've had during my stay. 
In 2011, Sam returned to Wyoming for the opening of the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center. He's on the board of directors for the organization. When he arrived in Cody this time, Sam walked the same street that had been plastered with racist sentiment in 1944. There were signs in every store. Every store had the sign, Welcome, Japanese Americans. My goodness, you know, over all these years, people have changed. After leaving camp, Sam's family made their way back to San Francisco. His father continued to work with language. He set up a school in the back of their home to teach English to Japanese people. Sam is now 85 years old and travels the country, sharing his family's story of camp. He wants to make sure that people know about the injustices that Japanese Americans suffered when they were incarcerated, and about how they persevered. It's the significance that under such harsh conditions, my father was able to create something that would perhaps be uh, lasting and, and useful to humanity. I think knowing my father tried to do the best under the circumstances, that probably uh, is one of the reasons why what I'm doing today is, is what I believe in and um, passing the word on to others who never heard about it. So make sure that it never happens again to to anyone. If you want to see Tokinobu Mihara's Braille Board and Howard Kuramitsu's first grade drawing, head to our website, apmreports.org. There, you can also see photos of other objects related to the incarceration that listeners have sent in. Sam Mihara recently published a book and a DVD about his family's experience of the incarceration. You can find a link to those sources on our site as well. Order 9066 is a co-production of APM Reports and the National Museum of American History. This extra was produced by Emerald O'Brien and me, Kate Ellis. We had production help from Stephen Smith and Alex Baumhart. Our technical director is Johnny Vince Evans. Join us next week for the seventh chapter of our series, Leaving Camp. Please help us spread the word about Order 9066. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.